Well, good morning, and I'm going to have a stand this morning as we continue to worship our Lord in prayer. And I'm sure this morning there are many things on our hearts. I know that uh, our world is a very fragile place. How many know that? We got fires all over the place. We're ingesting smoke. I said to Patty yesterday when I stepped outside, I said, well, I feel like I'm in India right now. With the heat and the smoke and the smell, I just felt like that's what it's like there. And so I just felt right at home. I just, we got India and Canada now. What can I say? But uh, let's really pray. My heart, you know, as Reg Adair was sharing, I just mentioned that briefly about possibly a son being deployed to Afghanistan right now and what's happening there. That's a very volatile situation. And, uh, you know, we're still there as Canadians. And I, I just, let's pray that, Everybody gets home safe. Amen? And maybe you have a need today. I, I would just say just lift it to God in prayer. We're going to talk about, we're looking at a beautiful text, casting all our cares, our anxiety on you because you care for us. Aren't you glad God's a caring God? That's, the, that's what we're going to hear today. God is a caring God. And uh, we can look to him for his grace. So Father, I just thank you this morning. You're the God of all grace. And that means so much to me, and it means so much to all of us, Lord. You are so loving. You're so concerned about all of the issues in our world. And Father, your heart cry is that all of, all of us would come to you. All of us would cast our cares on you. All of us would look to you, depend on you, rely on you with all of our hearts. <clears throat> Lord, you know the needs in our world today. We think of even uh, fellow Canadians that are, that are in Afghanistan and other uh, multinationals that are there. We pray for your grace to be upon them. We pray for your safety to be upon them. We pray for what's going to happen in the future. Lord, our hearts are, are overwhelmed by some of the challenges that are being presented to us in our world, but our eyes are on you. Lord, when you said all of these things are happening, we're to lift up our heads. Our redemption is drawing near. We believe that, Father, that you are here to save us. You are here to guide us. You are here to speak into our every situation. And that you never leave us. You never leave us alone. You're with us through the journey. You're with us in the great moments of life. You're with us in the deepest, darkest valleys, the most challenging, barren places of our soul. You're still there with us, Lord. There's no place we can go from your presence, but you are there. We thank you for that. I pray right now that you'd open our hearts. I pray for those that are in despair today, discouraged. Some are battling depression. Some are feeling a sense of hopelessness. And I just pray today that as your word goes forward, may your spirit open our hearts. May that darkness in our soul be cast out by the light of your presence and the light of your word. May you illuminate our hearts and minds and may we leave this place filled with joy, filled with hope, filled with gladness. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. Can any good thing come out of times of disappointment, pain, suffering, and misunderstanding, and even possibly defeat? Well, the short answer is, yes, it can. And I've entitled this message, The Upside of Down. I know it's the name of a leadership book, but I don't think they got that idea 
by random. I mean, what they're trying to convey, what the Word of God conveys to us is that our value system is so distorted and up, upside down, it needs to be righted. It needs to be changed, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about why is it that when you and I are a true follower of Jesus Christ, we don't just quite fit in. We're kind of out of step with the rest of the culture. We're just not in gear. We're not, we're not tracking. We're, we're out of step, and people, you know, anytime you're different, you stand out. Anybody know that's true? And people are threatened by differences. They really are. But I believe that can any good thing come out of these things? And part of the equation is simply that it depends on our response. How are we going to respond to the challenging moments? How are we going to respond to those difficulties? We're coming to the conclusion of Peter's letter. We're in the last chapter. This is the last message in the book that I'm going to talk about here. The church has been suffering persecution. It's been a difficult time. Peter's writing to encourage them regarding the nature of the true grace of God. And we're going to talk a lot about God's grace today. He says here in verse 12, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So obviously the fact that he's admonishing, encouraging, in a sense exhorting, we could say commanding, he's saying stand fast in what? The grace of God. That there's going to be a pressure against us to stand in God's grace. There's going to be a pressure that you and I feel that we got to do something, you know, we got to make something happen, and yet here we're told to stand in the grace of God. Peter's exhorting us as believers these commands, and we're going to look at an, a couple of significant commands today, but every command of God is followed by a promise. And I want us to not just hear what God is encouraging us to do, but I think we need to hear that if we do these things, here is what begins to unfold in our lives. And I think the promises are so encouraging that it should motivate us to want to do what God is telling us we need, we need and ought to do. Now, Peter is going to share with us that faith is going to be tested. And that's exactly what happens in life. And if you've been a Christian for a little while, you find out that your faith is tested. How many here can say, yeah, my, my faith has been tested on a no number of occasions. It's been challenged at times. It's been tested. Sometimes I've even doubted. Sometimes I've been overwhelmed. Sometimes I've despaired. Sometimes I've wondered where God was in the situation. My faith has been tested. As a matter of fact, Peter goes on to share that, you know, Jesus understands because he was tested. And he, he literally laid down the path before us. He's laid down a path of faith. And you and I just have to walk in his footsteps. You and I have to follow along that narrow path that Jesus talks about. He said, broad's the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And Jesus walked it. But it was a way of submission. It was a way of yielding and laying down his rights in order for his father's purposes to be accomplished. And God's going to call us to do the same thing. We're living in a culture today, everyone's standing up for their rights, screaming for their rights, demanding their rights. And yet the reality is, we're gonna find out that Jesus is saying, sometimes we have to lay them down. Jesus laid his down, why? For the good of others, for the sake of others, Jesus laid down his rights. Jesus, who is God, became flesh. Jesus laid aside his non-moral attributes in order so that he could come to this planet and live a sinless life and then become a sacrifice and die on our behalf. How powerful is that? I'm so glad Jesus came. And that's the gospel, folks. 
It's about Christ being crucified. It's about the fact that you and I have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That you and I now experience God's amazing grace. This this element called his gift. And the gift is actually a person called Jesus. And we have this favor before Almighty God. It's so powerful. Well, here in this final chapter, two significant commands with ensuing promises of victory over darkness, suffering, and persecution, even as these believers were experiencing it. And what we're about to see is the true nature of Christian opposition. And we're living in a time of Christian opposition. How many have figured this out? It's growing. It's tremendous. We've always lived in a time of Christian opposition. Some people have never noticed it because, you know, it depends where you live. I mean, there's places where there's tremendous opposition against the Christian message. And then there's places where the Christian message has had great inroads, and then the opposition has been far more diminished. But yet as a culture turns its back on God, that opposition continues to intensify, and we're sensing it today. That even in North America, the opposition to a true follower of Jesus Christ is going to intensify, and we recognize that. Paul Actmeyer says, Christians are thus involved in more than just a conflict between competing lifestyles or cultural understandings. This is so profound to me. It's not just that you and I differ in our understanding of what's going on in the culture and how we should live. Actually, it's more significant than that. It's, it's actually, we're involved in a final battle between good and evil, between God and the ultimate power of evil. We're actually, it, it's just that stark. You know, is that powerful or what? I think it is. And I think we need to understand it, that we're involved and we're engaged in this conflict. And sometimes as Christians, and we're going to see this, is that we become very dualistic. We think, oh, the power of evil and the power of God are equal forces and equal opposing forces. But I want to make a declaration to you that's not true. You know, Satan is far more defeated He's far, he's a created being. God has never been created. He's an, he's an infinite being. And he's all powerful. Satan has limited power and authority. We need to understand that. But sometimes we're gonna, as we're gonna see, we get deceived, we get defeated because we begin to believe something that's not true. We begin to believe lies. He goes on to say, it is for this reason that they're remaining, they're remaining faithful to the Christian call, calling is invested with such great importance by the author. In other words, Peter says it's very important that you and I stand for truth. It's very important that you and I stand for the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And now he's gonna point this out to these first century readers, but this applies equally so for us in the 21st century. That you and I need to embrace certain things in order to live a victorious life and win the battle when our faith is being tested. Now I'm gonna look at two elements that will cause us to triumph in the test of our faith. And the first one is, that the, is the nature in which we need to walk or in which we need to live. Walking is a metaphor in the Bible of life, life and living. How should you and I live? And we're supposed to live in the realm of humility. But what is humility? Humility is not depreciating ourselves. That's a false sense of humility. That's, that's actually an inverted sense of humility. It's unhealthy. Actually, what humility is, is a deep dependency and reliance upon God. It's not looking to ourselves. It's not even looking to people, ultimately. It's looking ultimately to God, that we're not walking and leaning to our own understandings as the the writers to Proverbs teaches us. 
He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. That's a big problem in our culture today. Peter now writes in chapter 5. We're looking at the very end of this chapter. He begins in verse 5. He says, in the same way, you who are younger, submit to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility. It's interesting, that terminology, clothe. You know, it's like putting on a garment. You know, the Bible talks about, you know, where to be clothed with a garment of, of praise, where to be clothed with a garment of righteousness. And here we are told to be clothed with the garment of humility. Interesting, put this on. You know, actually, it's interesting, in, in, in St. Augustine, he, when he became a Christian, he was reading that text from the book of Romans in chapter 13, and it says, make no provision for the flesh, rather clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on Jesus. And what's Jesus like? He's humble. It's beautiful. He says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. We're going to find out that word favor, speaking of God's grace. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And so it says then, cast all your anxiety on him. Another translation says, cast all your cares. Cast all the things that are troubling you, all the things that are weighing you down, all the things that are sucking your mind into a vacuum and keeping you locked into a state of anxiety or despair or frustration or whatever it is that's keeping your mind locked into that place. He says, put them all on God, cast them there. Isn't that great, Peter the fisherman? You know, he's used to casting nets. He says, why don't you just cast all that stuff on God? He says, why do you do that? Because he cares for you, Peter says. That's why you do it. And I want you to notice here that there are attitudes that need to be developed in our lives. And I think the first one is submission. And it's fascinating to me as we've been going through this book how chapter by chapter Peter keeps telling us to submit to something. You know, you see it when you're reading here. Uh, Beginning in chapter 2, he calls us to submit to those who are in earthly authority over us. Now, how many know it's easy to submit to somebody you agree with, but it's really difficult to submit to people you don't like or don't agree with? How many go, that's true, Pastor? That's a very difficult thing to do, but we're told to do it, right? Has anybody ever struggled with submission? Any kids ever struggle with submission to your parents? Oh, I love that. Honest boy. It's good. He's just saying he struggled with it. Doesn't mean he's not submitting. He's just saying, I struggle with it. We all struggle with it. I think if we're really honest in this room, every last one of us could say, I have moments of struggle with submission. Come on, let's be honest. Says, you know, he talks about employees submitting to their their boss. Yeah, but I don't like this guy. Well, he's taking advantage of me. Well, you know, hey, doesn't say you, you know, he says, when you go to a job you're supposed to work, you're supposed to be working as if it's under Christ. Yeah, well, he's not Jesus. I don't want to do that much work. Yeah, but that's not what you don't understand something. If you work as unto the Lord, it changes your attitude and you're free to actually serve with all of your heart. And who knows? You know what? Your boss may not be as bad as you think he is. Just a thought. Says, wives, submit to your husbands. Oh, that's not a popular message in this culture. Husbands are to submit to their wives. Well, how do they do that, pastor? They need to show them consideration. That's how a husband shows submission to his wife. He's considerate of her. He understands, you know, 
he's, he's trying to tie in and get an understanding that this is a person that has emotions, right? All the husbands should be saying amen, pastor. They, <laughs> our wives have emotions. And then you better start reading those emotions because it makes married life a lot better. Because some of you guys are smiling now because some of you have misread emotions. And it got you into trouble, right? All the ladies are laughing because you know it's true. You know. Well, well I'll, I'll stop there while I'm ahead. <laughs> then it goes on here to says, you that are younger submit to those that are older. Now he's just finished talking about you know, people in leadership. But you know this idea of older and younger in the New Testament, there is not a distinction between like an elder, like a spiritual leader. Though last week I talked about the nature of older people generally being in leadership. But here it says a younger person is supposed to submit to those that are older. Let's just take that biologically. Why would a younger person submit to an older person? Well, if we have any sort of common sense, we might say, well, you know, they might just know a little bit more than me. Now, I'm going to ask a question. All of you that are 50 plus, can you look back to when you were 20, 30s, and 40s and say, I did a lot of dumb things, and if I could do it over again, I'd probably make a few changes. And even though I thought I knew the answer, now I'm, that I'm 50, 60, 70, and 80, I'm realizing I was wrong on some of those things. Anybody want to admit that? Okay, there we go. That's the truth, right? I think we need to understand some things. How many realize that life is a journey and we're learning through the journey? Actually, to be a disciple means I'm a learner. If I'm truly a disciple of Jesus, I'm continuously learning. I always get nervous when people tell me they know everything. Scares me half to death. I'm still learning. And I think we should all be learning because we've not arrived. We're not in heaven yet. We're not perfect yet. So the younger are to submit to the older. But here it's probably speaking about submission to those in spiritual leadership. And why does he seem to pick on young men? Because I think when we're young guys want to prove themselves. Come on, young guys, that's true. We all want to make a name for ourselves, make a mark in life, you know. We all want to prove our dad wrong or our dad right, depending on if he said, hey, you're going to do it, or if he said, no, you're not. You know, we want to prove him right or wrong, whatever. But, you know, there's always this tension between, you know, males and there's competition and we want to, we want to, but, you know, the scriptures here say those that are younger should submit to those that are older. And I wonder, you know, if uh, Peter had in mind Jesus when he talked about humility and submission. I mean, think about Jesus laying down his rights and look at the way he served. I mean, Jesus even got a towel and went and washed their feet. So Jesus knew all about, even though he was the person in authority, he humbled himself. It says, why do we do this? Because God opposes the proud. How many want to have God opposing your life? Got my hand down. I don't want any opposition from God. I want to, be, I want to have it said that God is for me. God is not opposed to me. But who, do, who does God oppose? He opposes the proud. And who does he give grace to? The humble. So what do I want to be? I want to be humble. So I write in my journal, Lord, help me to walk every day humbly before you and man. That's my prayer. I want to walk humbly before you. You know, I want to trust you. I want to rely on you. I want to depend on you. Now, one of the things that happens so often is the enemy entices us. It's not hard because there is an element of pride in our lives to succumb to our pride. We're going to talk about that a little later. But I want to just point out that uh, 
Paul Ackmeyer points out a caution or the balance regarding taking submission to an extreme. Okay, so do you know in the Bible, anytime you do, you go to the extremes, you end up in fanaticism, which is really not healthy. You know, so we can take submission to an extreme while also he wants to show the value of following Jesus in our behavior in this great spiritual conflict that we're currently engaged in. In other words, there's a limit to our submission. So we submit, but what's the point that we discern that we can't submit anymore? And this is what he says. Subordination or submission of any kind, therefore, has as it limit faithfulness to God. In other words, if I'm going to be told to submit to something that means I'm going to become unfaithful to God, then I have to resist. Where subordination is asked that weakens that faith, Christians are to resist and are able to resist because God in the end will rescue them. Isn't that great? So here's Daniel. He's told not to pray. So what does he do? He prays because he knows that he's being asked to do something that God's asking him to do. He's being told not to do it. And he prays. And what happens? There's a consequence. He doesn't, he submits to the king. He's, he's in prison. He's put into a den of lions for the night. But how many know God rescues him? Isn't that amazing? That's the point of the story. God rescues him because he's a man who's obeying God and yet still submitting to the king. How many think that's an amazing story? It is amazing. But then the next morning, the king figures he's probably, you know, a lion dinner. And he's pretty choked up about it because he likes Daniel and he calls out and Daniel's still alive. And he says, hey, don't worry. My God showed up, sent his angels. They shut the mouth of the lions. And the king was so overjoyed. He said, you know all those guys that made me sign that thing to get rid of Daniel? I'm throwing them all in there. And by that time, those lions were hungry and no angels were sparing those boys. So they got in trouble. We know that. We read that. The struggle of this culturally and economically insignificant community of followers of Christ is thus invested with more than simple cultural or social consequences. Now, that's a fancy way of saying, don't worry about what happens to you. There's, there's something more significant happening. He says that it is a matter of the final fate of the universe itself. Since the one the community follows, since the one we, the believers, are following as a community, is none other than the creator and sustainer of the universe who will in the end see to the triumph of the divine will. Now, folks, this tells me something. If you and I are going to follow God, we've got to go right to the end. Because how many know that if you're in a conflict, now I've never you know, by the grace of God, I've never been in a military engagement. Some people in this room have. You have to see it right to the end. Right to the end. And it's not easy. And there's casualties. And you know, in the spiritual life, I've seen it. Because I've been a Christian now for a long time. I've been a pastor for a long time. I've seen a lot of spiritual casualties. Because people, you know, they get all excited for a season. But you know what? This is a long race. This is a lifetime. We're giving ourselves to God for a lifetime, and you and I need to be faithful to God right to the very end, but I'm going to encourage you, God can help us get there. It's not just dependent on you and me, and we're going to look at that in a moment. Secondly, we're admonished to humble ourselves. Humble yourself, therefore. So who's responsible for us to become humble? I am. You are. We're to humble ourselves. And if you and I don't humble ourselves, God will humble you. You go, how do you know? I've been humbled by God. 
That's all I know. Anybody here been humbled by God? I've been humbled by God. And, I, and I've learned some lessons through pain and suffering because, you know what? You get full of yourself, God will empty you of yourselves. So you better work on this humility idea. It's a big thing I've discovered. You don't want to have God humbling you. It's very painful. So I'm, I'm, I'm your friend today. I'm telling you, like Peter, humble yourself. He says, therefore, under God's mighty hand, I love that, that statement, that he may lift you up in due time. So in other words, the way up is what? The way down. And we know that about Jesus, that he was willing to leave the exalted state of heaven and come to earth and live as a servant and die a criminal's death. And then the Bible says, because he was obedient to that kind of suffering and submitting to that, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I'm gonna declare to you today, there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will be declared Lord over this planet. It's coming. What a day. It's gonna happen. So how in the world do I submit under God's mighty hand? Well, it starts by submitting to his word. And I love this text from Isaiah chapter 66. He says, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now what does that mean? It just means simply this, that when I take God's word, I don't, I, I don't act like, well, that's just his opinion. You know? No, this is God talking to me. And I better do what he says. You know, I was just reading in my little quiet time this morning, really early in the morning, about Jeremiah. And these crazy Israelites, you know, they had been taken, some of them had already been taken to Babylon. Jeremiah kept saying, listen, you gotta submit to the king of Babylon. Nope, they're a bunch of rebels. And then they get afraid. I'm convinced one of the reasons why people are so rebellious is driven by fear. That's the underlying motivation. People are scared. They do the wrong thing because they're fearful. They're afraid of the consequences. They're afraid if they, if they stand up and do what God's telling them to do, that, you know, that it may not turn out well for them. They're afraid. But I want to tell you right now, it's better to obey God and suffer the little suffering you might endure. Because, I mean, Jeremiah was flogged. He did suffer a little bit. But these other guys, they just disobeyed God. Jeremiah was told by these leaders, you know, oh, we want to go into Egypt now. We're afraid to stay in our country. And Jeremiah kept assuring them, no, God tells you to stay. And so they said, listen, Jeremiah, why don't you go seek God? This is another group says, why don't you go seek God? And whatever you tell us to do, we'll do. Even if we don't like it. I like the way they say that. Jeremiah comes back after 10 days and says, God said this. You're supposed to stay in the land. The Babylonians won't destroy you. It'll all go well with you. I'll watch over you and care for you. Isn't that a beautiful promise? But if you go ahead and go into Egypt because you're afraid, the things that you're afraid of, war, famine, and all those bad stuff, it'll happen to you in Egypt. You know what they said? Not God. This isn't from God. We're not going to listen to you. They went into Egypt, and everything that Jeremiah said happened to them. How tragic is that? Because they did not humble themselves. They They trusted in their own understanding. Caused problems. Thomas Schreiner pointing out the text here that we're looking at in verse six points out the humbling and joined probably means that they were to accept the suffering God 
as ordained as his will instead of resisting and chafing against his will while suffering. Now, I'm going to make a statement here. I know there are believers out there that believe that no one should suffer. I'm going to make a statement. In this world, we'll all suffer. There's sin in this world, unfortunately. What Peter is trying to tell us in this letter is simply this. Don't suffer because of your sinfulness. Don't suffer because of some stupid thing you did. But if you're going to suffer, suffer for the right reasons. I'm doing what God's asking me to do, and now I'm suffering as a result of that. That's going to happen sometimes because we live in a fallen world, and we have people who are opposed to the things of God. It will happen, folks. We need to understand it correctly. He goes on to say here, they should realize that the purification of God's house has begun. What was he talking about? Well, in 1 Peter 4, 17, he says, judgment begins in the house of God, and if we can barely stand up against it, what's going to happen to people who don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? They're going to be devastated. God's going to start dealing with every one of our sins now. You and I, as believers, you're first up on God's assessment chart. He's going to deal with us. Do you know God loves you as a child, as a father loves a child? He says, you know, yeah, the neighbor kids may get away with that, but you're my kids, and we're not going to let you do that. We're going to address this bad behavior in your life. So you and I need to learn how to rejoice when God disciplines our life, saying, Lord, thank you that you love me so much, you even disciplined me. That's an expression of your love. You're straightening me out, and I need it, because sometimes I'm a little bit strong-willed, strong-willed, and I'm a little bit rebellious. And I also have a little bit of self inside of me, and you're going to eradicate some of that stuff in me. He goes on, when Peter said this, that they're to humble themselves under God's mighty hand, he used an expression that is usually associated particularly with God's delivering Israel out of Egypt. That, That expression, under the mighty hand of God, is an expression of God's omnipotence, which means God's power. God is all powerful. Now, I wanted you to think back. What was going on in Egypt with the Israelites? They were in slavery. By the way, being in slavery, were they suffering? Yes, read Exodus. They were under the taskmasters. They were suffering bitterly under the taskmasters. God said, okay, I'm going to take you out now. And you know what he did? He took a nation of slaves that were being totally oppressed by the most by the world power. Egypt at that point in human history was a world power. And God defeated them. Isn't that amazing? God took them out and delivered the people. What does that teach you and I? God says, if you will humble yourself, I will deliver you. How many So I like this. I like this. If, you, if people start oppressing me and I'm doing what God wants me to do, you're going to deal with God. Not me. You and I, you know, we don't have to get even. We don't have to exact revenge. We can just sit back and say, God, I'm just going to trust you, and you're going to deal with this whole thing. And God will, and he does. As a matter of fact, just as the Lord delivered his people from Egypt, so he would vindicate his people in Asia Minor who had suffered. So, when we are humbling ourselves, we, were, we entrust ourselves to God's mighty power, he'll raise us up. That's what we need to understand. Now, British preacher F.B. Meyer, who lived between 1847 and 1929, 
He describes the subtle nature of pride. And I, I think this is important because sometimes we, don't, we think we're doing good. We think, well, I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't have a pride issue, but this is what he wrote, and I like this. He said, pride is one of the most detestable sins, yet it does find lodgment in earnest soul. In other words, what it says is it lives inside of us. That's what he's saying. Though we often speak of it by some other lighter name. We don't just say, well, I'm full of pride. We just say, well, I'm kind of independent. That's a nice name for what? Well, that's pride. Well, I'm just self-reliant. I don't trust anybody. I just do it on my own. Another name for pride. That's what he's telling us. Then he says, we don't always discern it in the hurt feeling. You know, oh, I'm offended. I'm wounded, you know. We got a whole culture today that's walking around. They're always offended and wounded. Do you know what that is? It's pride. Ooh. That's scary. Which retires into itself and nurses its sorrows in a sulk. So if you're sulking right now, that's an expression of pride. Hey, this is pulling up on all of our chain right now, isn't it? You know, we do not realize how much it has to do with our withdrawing from positions where we feel ourselves outshone by someone who excels us and with whom we do not care to enter comparisons with the certainty of being second best. He says one of the reasons why we don't want to, you know, do something is we're afraid people will be better than us. Why do we have that fear? Pride. Why don't we sit down and go, man, I'm so excited. You're so amazing. You know, I don't, I don't, I, I think of myself, why don't we cheer other people on? Pride. That's why. You see what's going on? It's all about us. And that's bad. Then he says something very interesting, and I love this. He says, St. Augustine says, truly, that which first overcame man is the last thing he overcomes. In other words, the first thing that overcame humanity was pride. Satan fell into pride. The first human couple, were, it was because of pride. Why? Because they didn't trust God. Anytime you and I don't trust God, it's because we're trusting in ourselves, right? And look how the devil came. He tempted them. And they were, they were fooled. And they were trusting in themselves. So the Bible here says that, you know what, pride has to be resisted. And is, and is resisted. It should be resisted by us, but God resists it. That's for sure. He says he opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. How many here say, I want God's favor? I want God's favor in my life. Okay, then we have to walk in humility. We have to walk in humility to gain that favor. You know, I think one of the great strategies of the devil is to get us fighting God. You go, how in the world can the devil get us to fight God? It's real simple. Remember the story of Balaam, the prophet, the false prophet? What did he do? He kept coming along. He was being paid to curse Israel. Israel was blessed of God. Every time he opened his mouth, he blessed them. I tell you that Balak was so upset with him. He says, listen, I'm paying you to curse these guys. Every time you open your mouth, you bless them. It happened four times. He says, you're not getting paid. I can't take this anymore. I don't want to hear from you. He says, you know, one of the times he said, well, let me just show you a little part of Israel. Maybe you can curse that part. There was not one part he could curse. It was blessing, 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 blessing all the way through. So, you know, Balak, unfortunately, was greedy. He wanted to get paid. How do you know that? Because in chapter 25 of the book of Numbers, we see what he gave. He gave advice to this king how to defeat Israel. You know what he did? He said, all you've got to do is entice them to sin against their God and they'll be fighting God himself. And how many here know you're not going to win that battle? You know, I put that down. Satan works at maneuvering and getting us into a position where we're fighting God. And friends, God does not lose that battle. Okay, God lifts the humble. So should we, so 
You know, one of the fears that people have if they live in submission and humility is people will take advantage of us. How many say that's kind of a concern, right? Sure it is. So what's the very next verse? Verse 7. Take a look at what it says. You know, if we, we it, it says, listen, he says, take your, your anxieties and cast them onto God. And I've already suggested this. Peter's using that analogy from fishing, you know. Those nets, they were all weighted. You throw them in the water, they're weighted, down they go. Why? To entrap fish. He says, why don't you entrap your anxieties the same way I catch fish? You throw your net, you're casting your net. And then it says, you're casting all of your concerns to God and have the confidence what's going to happen. God will care for you. Do you know God is good? Do you know God is good? Yeah, but think about the temptation in the garden. What was the temptation? Did God really say that you were really going to die? No, God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll be just like God. You'll know good from evil. Hey, you know what? God's cheating on you guys. He knows something you don't know. He doesn't want to let you in on it. Why don't you just find out for yourself? This is a good thing to do. In other words, he was actually testing on the goodness of God. And one of the great temptations is for us to not believe that God is good. That when God says no, that God is somehow jipping us of something. That somehow God is not good. Listen, folks, if God says no to something, it's because God's so smart, he knows that his no is to protect us from something bad. But you see, we're so smart, we think, well, I can do that. You know, I, I keep hearing Christians going, well, I can handle that. I can handle that. I don't know about you, but I can't handle sin. Sin is powerful. And if you start sucking up to sin, pretty soon it overwhelms you. And next thing you know, you're in a state of defeat. And pretty soon you're in a state of bondage. And pretty soon you're in a state of addiction. And I think we, we see a lot of addictive behavior today. Because that's the power of sin. But I want to declare to you there's a power greater than sin today. It's the power of God's grace. It releases us from that captivity. Thank God for that. Well, I like what uh, R.C. Sproul said, sharing something insightful about the age in which we're living in. He said this, Martin Hindiger, a 20th century philosopher, is analyzing the human condition, and he talks about having the feeling of being thrown chaotically into whatever state one finds themselves in, and the singular emotion that we experience is the kind of care that weighs us down and drives us to despair. How many are going, man, that sounds like the time in which we're living in right now, because he was writing in the 20th century. This has been deemed the age of anxiety. We're filled with anxieties. We're filled with fears right now. And I see it. I sense it everywhere I turn. Actually, he understood that people carry a burden of quiet desperation. And this care and concern is a part of our human predicament and not easily overcome, which is true. God says that we're to take all such care and throw it to him because he's the God who cares. You know what? I would say to us, you and I need to turn our hearts to God. We need to believe that God really cares and that he has amazing grace and love and provisions for our life. But let me move on to the second element. We're to resist Satan. When we're submitting to God, we are resisting Satan. It's just that simple. If I do what God tells me to do, I'm resisting Satan. But I have to resist walking in pride and self-reliance, which always leads to defeat. Look what happens here in verse 8. Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. i got to stop here. This is the only time Satan is described as a lion in the entire Bible. 
show me another spot. Who's the lion in the Bible? Jesus, thank you so much. He's a faker. He's pretending. Okay, think about it. So he's trying to, he's trying to roar and devour. He's looking, he's, he's like, he's, he's prowling around like a, like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. But hey, if you're hanging around the lion, you know, in the Chronicles of Narnia, that's Aslan. I'm just hanging on to Aslan here. If that fake lion shows up and I'm hanging with Aslan, that fake lion is so scared, he's gone. He's out of here. And see, I, I think sometimes as Christians, you know, we, we've, we've, you know, we've really embellished how powerful Satan is, and we've diminished the power of Almighty God in our lives. That's what I'm trying to get at. So we need to understand something about this. Verse 9, it says, resist him. So how do you do that? Stand firm in the faith. All I need to do is stand. Paul says, having done everything, stand. Put on the whole armor of God, he says in Ephesians 6. And then he says, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. What's he saying? Everybody, you know, we, we act like when we're going through a trial, we're the only ones. Nobody's ever gone this way before. I'm the only one going through this. That's all a lie. Right now, some of you in this room, you're discouraged. Some of you are disheartened. Some of you are despairing. Some of you are you know, having all kinds of things going on. And you feel like you're all alone and nobody else understands it. But right now in the very same room, there are other people going through the very same thing. Do you realize that? And all we need to do is get together and say, you know what? We're going to just pray through this thing. We're just going to stand together. We're going to believe together. We're going to cooperate together. How powerful is that? He goes on to say, And the God of all grace, who called you to this eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Hey, Peter's writing, because uh, he knows from experience. You know what? Sometimes you go through a hard experience. How many know Peter's experience of denying Jesus was not a fun experience for him? No, it wasn't fun. And he was at fault and he knew it and he repented. But listen to this. Jesus came along and he did what? He restored him and he strengthened him and he used him. He didn't give up on Peter. Are you glad for that? And you know, a lot of times we give up on each other and we give up on ourselves, but God doesn't give up on us. How beautiful is that? He's a restoring God. He's a strengthening God. As a matter of fact, one of the ways to actually allow us to grow in our faith is that our faith has to be tested. It has to be pushed. It has to be strengthened. You have to go through things. You have to experience things so that you know that God is able to keep you in that moment. To him be the power forever and ever, amen. To be self-controlled and sober-minded. Someone has defined self-control as the capacity to actually uh, break a chocolate bar in four pieces with your bare hands and then just eat one piece. <laughs> oh, some of you are chuckling, smiling. I, I, I think there's a little more to that definition than that, but self-control is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that true? That's actually, the Bible defines it. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, you keep moving down, you get self-control. Against there is no law. So if the Holy Spirit is at work in my life, what's he producing inside of me? 
gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. So here's what I'm going to say to us. Do you know you and I can actually say no to sin? How many know that's true? We have the power inside of us. If we're a child of God, we have the spirit inside of us that can enable us to say no to sin. And that's why Augustine says, yeah, in the book of Romans, see, there's a fly bugging me here. That's Beelzebub, you know, the Lord of the flies. No. We can say no to sin. That's why Augustine says, You know, he's reading from the book of Romans. Paul says, look, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. Let's stop making excuses. I'm serious. Let's be full of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, some of us, we don't understand something. I think we think about salvation as, you know, that's that's what the grace of God is all about. Can I just, I'm going to close with this because I want to finish on time here. Let's look at this last verse. He says, the God of all grace. The God of all grace. Think about it for a minute. Usually when we think of the grace of God, we know that the grace of God is a gift, right? It's God's undeserved favor. How many know that's the definition we, we usually put on it? And then we read Ephesians and we say, you know, for by grace are you saved. It is the gift of God. Gift and grace is the same word, charis. This is not from yourselves. We don't save ourselves, folks. How many here understand? We don't save ourselves. We get that. We're Protestants. We understand it. Yay, you know, wonderful. The grace of God. But that's where we stop at the grace of God. Can I say something to you this, today? The grace of God does not stop in just saving you. The grace of God keeps you, and the grace of God will keep you to the very end. Paul says, he who began a good work in you will help complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. How in the world are you going to get to the finish line? It's not your strength. You don't start out in grace. You don't start out in faith, and then after that you move into, you know, what I'm able to do for God. No, it's you and I trusting God every single day we're moving in God's grace and he is changing us. He's changing us from the inside out. It's the work of God's grace in our lives which we are cooperating with. We're not, we're not passive. We're cooperating with it. We're obeying it. We're responding to it. It's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to all worldliness and ungodliness. So the grace of God doesn't say, oh, I I have grace now, I just go and sin. No, the grace of God says no to sin. Grace of God says you have so much power inside of you now, you don't have to sin, you just have to obey God. Because whatever you give yourself to, if you're a a, a Christian, you're either a slave to uh, God or you're a slave to sin. It's real simple. You got to choose who you're going to be a slave to. It comes right down to that. So I think one of the great tactics of the enemy here is that we think, oh, I've blown it now. How is God ever going to forgive me? But let me close with these verses of Scripture. I have them on the PowerPoint, but I've got a bunch in between, so I'm just going to close with these. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin." 
Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So let me ask a question. When do you need grace? Well, yeah, all the time. But especially when you are in need. How many are in need this morning? Are you in need? I'm in need. I need God's grace. So let's stand this morning. You know, I, I was praying this morning, and I sensed in my heart there were people going to be at church today that were going to be discouraged. They're despairing. Maybe you feel like, you know what? I've been messing up, Pastor. You have no idea. I've just been surrendering to sin. I want to make a declaration to you. There's a grace that's able to forgive you this morning. There's a grace that is able to deliver you this morning. And there's a grace that is able to sustain you through this walk. There's a grace that is able to help you finish at the very end of your life as a faithful servant of Almighty God. But you and I need to give ourselves to that grace today. So with every head bowed this morning, how many here say, you know, Pastor, I need to have a work of grace in my heart today. I need God to touch me, to strengthen me today. I need God today to forgive me. I need God today to set me free. I need God today to help me to not be so self-reliant and so independent. I need the grace of God today to transform something on the inside of me. The Spirit of God is encouraging you. If God be for me, the Bible says what? Who can be against me? All the power of hell can come against us. But if you and I are trusting in Jesus, that's no match. Because you and I are standing firm in the faith. We're standing fast in the grace of God. So, Lord, I just thank you this morning. What an amazing, loving Father you are. I thank you you don't just call us out of your sin. You deliver us. You empower us. You enable us. You transform us. You call what darkness into our life. You, call, you, you, you just speak light into those places of darkness. You're calling us now to clothe ourselves with humility. You're calling ourselves to clothe ourselves with the person of Jesus Christ. You're calling ourselves to live in righteousness. You're calling us to yourself. And we pray this morning that you would strengthen us, Father, that you would restore today, that you would re-empower, you would reinvigor that you would encourage today, that you would comfort today, that we would leave this place knowing that you care about us and that now as we're casting every anxious thought your way, Father, we are now free to serve you. We're free to rejoice in you. We're free to enjoy you and delight in you. I pray do a deep, a profound, a supernatural and powerful work in every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.